Thanks, Phil. And, uh, thank you, everyone. <coughs> so I'm still struggling with a bit of a sore throat, and uh, it uh, gets worse in the evenings for some strange reason. I have no idea why that should happen. So the Gospel of Mark is a very lovely Gospel in uh, many respects. Um, we think of the character of the Lord Jesus Christ in many different ways in terms of perhaps uh, the way that we were brought up, for example. It might be that uh, we see um, uh, a very weak Jesus. And this seems to be the way that uh, sometimes churches present the Lord Jesus Christ as being weak and effective. Uh, we tend to see or imagine pictures of uh, a shepherd with a, a little lamb in his arms, and we get the idea that that's what this Jesus is all about, and perhaps sometimes in the world people can understand that. And we forget the times when he cleared the temple. He made a whip, and he went in, and with a righteous anger was able to clear it and to stop those that were making his father's house into a, a marketplace, a place that it shouldn't be. And when we come here to the Gospel of Mark, uh, we discover that uh, there's something else that we see and we learn and we understand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark's Gospel uh, is short. There's only 16 verses. It was written by Mark, who wasn't old enough to have been an apostle. So it was written a little bit later. And we also find that uh, from a historical perspective, it's suggested that uh, most of what Mark had been able to write and to present uh, was exactly the feelings that um, the Apostle Peter had to present and to talk through. And so we can begin to look at Mark's gospel from that perspective. So the theme of Mark's gospel is simply this. Jesus Christ is the servant. Uh, perhaps the key verse that we have uh, in the gospel is Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, which I think sums it up very, very well. And we just turn uh, very quickly. I will do that. And we read verse 45, which simply says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So this helps us to see the theme of this gospel. And the theme is that Jesus Christ is the servant you might think to yourself, well, that can't possibly be, can it be? How can it possibly be that Jesus is the servant? Well, as we begin to look at uh, these uh, words very briefly this evening, we will understand that this was a servant who cared. This was a servant who was prepared to go into the place that many would never, ever have thought possible. This was a servant who was prepared to ensure that he carried out all the instructions that were given to him by his father. <coughs> now, when we talk about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, today it seems that some people have the idea that that simply means that we have an item or a topic for discussion, a topic for debate. But I want to explain to every one of us, all of us here this evening, that this is not an option when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is not here to be debated. It's not here to be discussed. It's not here <coughs> um, to be argued over. But sadly, many people seem to think that these are the options that are made available to us 
to discuss it, to debate it. I want to say emphatically that the answer is no. The gospel, and as we see here in Mark's gospel, but of course throughout the whole of the scriptures, including the Old Testament, is not a discussion. There is no discussion to be had when it comes to the gospel. There is only one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. It is only the blood of Jesus that washes us of our sins. There is no other blood that can do this for us. There is no other option that can do this. There is no system of works that can do this. There is no system of organized religion that can do this. And so often (coughs) people will talk about the fact that they have endeavored to do the best they can and they have lived a life which they feel is worthy. I think one of the saddest things is when you meet people perhaps at the end of their life and they will hold my hand and grip it hard. It's amazing how much pressure an elderly lady has in her hand when she's on the last little while of her life. And if she's not saved, she will look because there's a fear. And she'll say, surely I'm not going to be turned away because I've been good. I've lived a good life. Now, in our assessment, that, of course, is something that we could possibly come up with quite easily. And there may be some folks here this evening that are able to make that assessment (coughs) the gospel (coughs) is an announcement there's no debate there's no discussion jesus gave his life as a ransom for many and the simple question is have you heard and accepted this announcement that's it there is no other discussion now as you work your way through mark's gospel you discover that Jesus as the servant ministers as a servant. He preaches the gospel in Galilee and in the areas around. And then the servant king, because whilst he is a servant, he is still king. Do not misunderstand this. I think it's only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that can sometimes present an anomaly. Because we would never think of a king as a servant. But the servant king moves to Jerusalem and he prepares for his trial and for his crucifixion, the mock trial that he goes through and all that is surrounded with the crucifixion, the resurrection, (coughs) and his ascension back into heaven. And whilst he is in Jerusalem, the servant king does something for us all. He warns us about the future. And he says, you have to start listening. Because the future is important. And he closes, if you look at uh, your Bible, if you have a, a, what you call a red letter version, which um, yeah, always a bit of argument as to whether uh, you know, it's all the word of God, but it's nice to perhaps see sometimes the words that Jesus spoke. And virtually the whole of this chapter <coughs> is a red letter version. And we come to the final two verses. And I just read them now and we come back to them in a moment. Lest coming suddenly, he finds you sleeping. And verse 37 says, And what I say to you, I say to all. And then our Lord gives one word. Watch. 
In the NKJV, it's got an explanation mark after it. You can tell that Jesus is expressing this in no uncertain terms. He's saying, don't sleep, watch. Don't nod off. And anyone's nodding off at the moment, stop. Because you've got to watch. And if your eyes are closed, you can't watch. If you're asleep, you won't hear things. Well, actually, that's not entirely true. My wife and I were sound asleep on one occasion. <laughs> and I think it was, what, about three in the morning, sweetheart? Something like that. There was an almighty crash <laughs> in the hallway. And we both <laughs> sat up in bed, somewhat terrified. And I just remember we both looked at each other, and there was a squeal because we didn't know what had gone on. And a couple of pictures had fallen off the stair wall. And the noise, cr as they crashed down the stairs, woke us up. But then it's too late. So Jesus, the servant king, says watch. He unveils the future. And in Mark 13, our Lord Jesus begins by saying something that got the attention of the disciples and all the other people who were listening <coughs> as he spoke. He expressed something very precious to the Jewish nation. Something they didn't like, nor were they prepared to accept. Because in verse 1 he says, Then as he went out of the temple, so we know where he has been. One of his disciples turns to him and says, Teacher, see what manner of stones, what buildings are here. And so this disciple is doing what many people have done. When they had seen the temple, they expressed how incredible it was. What a beautiful building it was. The decoration on the outside of the temple was incredible. It had uh, a vine that was painted right the way around the side of it with bunches of grapes. And it was the place that the Jewish people held to be most holy to them. And there was a pride about it. Now... When I go home, and we're hoping to go in the summer to England, and we will see, I hope and pray, some of those wonderful old buildings that are 1,000, 1,500 years old. And I know that here in North America, it's always a bit tricky to cast your mind back to something like that. But uh, close to where I come from in Somerset, there's a little city called Wells, and right in the middle is Wells Cathedral. And my wife and I have, when we've been over, we've been able to go. And sometimes we go to Evensong, which is sung inside the cathedral. And it's really very moving because of the acoustics, the building, the structure. And then you look outside on the west front and you see the carving reaching right up into the sky. And that's perhaps <coughs> how the disciples saw this. And they said, teacher... Do you see what manner of building? This, this building's incredible. This, this building is wonderful. And there's that pride that comes from the words that we have here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Well, of course. I've just mentioned them to you. And Jesus says this, Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. The temple's going to go. So our Lord had this very special way of getting people's attention. And this worked well. The Jews were proud of their temple. 
And that verse in verse 2 brought shock and horror as Jesus spoke. Because Jesus back in Mark 11 had given an, his estimate of the temple and we alluded to it in a moment ago. He drove out the money lenders. He drove out those people who were selling things. He overturned the tables. Could you imagine what took place when our Lord did that? It must have been horrendous. You know, everything had been set up. This is what happened. This is how the Jewish religion functioned and operated. And Jesus came in and he drove them out. Is it not written, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And in Matthew 23, the parallel chapters of Mark 11 to 13, Jesus speaking of the temple he says some hard words and shocking words. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. And in Jerusalem today, it continues to be left desolate. <coughs> then the disciples come and they sit and they talk privately to Jesus and they ask him, which I think we would do as well. When, when's all this going to happen? You know, shock, horror. The temple's going to be destroyed. When? When will the signs, when would all these things be fulfilled? Good questions. Uh, my family and I grew up in uh, the Brethren Assemblies, and if anybody doesn't know what a Brethren Assembly is, um, it's a bit like a Baptist church, but less well organized. <laughs> and if there's any brethren people listening, I apologize for that statement. But on the wall behind where the pastor would preach, so here, not pastor actually, because they didn't have pastors, where the, the word was, was spoken, there was a beautiful, and I've got to say, very, very attractive plan, map, about the end times, how everything would fit in together. And there was one man within the assembly and he was delighted to be able to say that he could tell us everything as to where we were, what was happening and when things were going on. And I remember on one occasion my father asking him, so what date is it? And he very nearly gave a date. And then realized, of course, that Jesus said, you'll never know the date as to when these things will take place. At 11.15 a.m. on the 3rd of September in 1939, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, Neville Chamberlain, at the time declared that Britain was at war with Germany. So people knew that the war had started. They were told to uh, build bomb shelters. And uh, people were given reinforced dining room tables so that if a bomb dropped nearby, they could all hide under the table. And there would be some protection for them. But for a period of eight months, absolutely nothing happened. There was no bombs, there was no guns, there was nothing that took place. Until the 10th of May 1940 when the Netherlands were invaded. And then the phony war, as it was called, was brought to an end. The blitz over London began and a time of great tribulation was entered into. People were frightened. 
the children were evacuated to the countryside. And my mum remembers in a little cottage with two bedrooms, six kids from the cities coming and living with them. And people were terrified because it was an awful thing that was going on. Bombs were landing and the cities were being destroyed. And it was a great time of tribulation. But there was that period of quiet beforehand. And people got to the point and saying, well, nothing's happened. It's not going to happen. And there was a sense of peace that took place. And then suddenly, everything changed. I use that as an example to try and help us to see what is being presented here in these uh, very disturbing words and verses and chapters that our Lord himself is speaking of. Because here in Mark 13, the servant king explains to his disciples and indeed to ourselves what is going to happen in the future. Now, Jesus didn't preach this sermon to satisfy the curiosity of the disciples or even perhaps to try and correct some of the confused thinking that they had demonstrated. No, our Lord Jesus exhorted the disciples to take heed, to listen. If we look at verse 5, we begin to see this, and Jesus answered them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. And this morning, if you were able to join with us, you'll remember that we spoke of Johannes de Ruta, a man who is going on trial, I think, in uh, the next few months in British Columbia. And he has come and said, I'm the Christ. Follow me. But Jesus said, take heed. So take heed means we have to watch and we have to listen. We have to listen and we have to watch. We have to see what's going on around us. We have to be discerning. We have to open our ears. We have to open our hearts. We have to see what is going on. Verse 9, but watch out for yourselves. Now there's a word. For they will devour you, sorry, deliver you up to councils. And you will be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my name's sake, for a testimony to them. And he goes on, I think it's in verse 23, and says, But take heed. See, I have told you all things beforehand. <coughs> take heed means, means not just hear the words but understand them and then to do something radical live in the light of these words live in the light of what is being said and then if the men before our Lord had not taken heed he closed the chapter with a powerful statement which we've read together and he says and what I say to you I say to all that's us we're included. He simply says, watch. Jesus couldn't have made it any clearer. Now, a great deal of the chapter, uh, verses 5 to 23, that we have before us, <coughs> uh, 
we find that our Lord Jesus is talking about a period of time that is described as the tribulation. And the example I gave of the declaration of war in eight months of peace and then the war began in earnest and then the tribulation began and people were frightened is a picture that we have here. Mark 13 verse 19 says, For in those days there will be tribulation, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the creation which God created until this time, nor shall ever be seen. In these verses, our Lord Jesus Christ describes the different stages of the tribulation period. He talks about the beginning, he talks about the middle, and he talks about the end of this tribulation period that he is speaking of. And then after he speaks about this tribulation period, he then brings two parables. <clears throat> and these parables urge believers, notice believers, to watch and to take heed. Not just hear the words, but to understand them. Do you find that you just hear the words, but you don't understand? You read God's word, but you don't understand. You need to start to take time to listen properly, to hear God speaking and you need to start understanding. You need to start asking questions like, what does this mean for me? What have I got to watch out for? Now, we're not here this evening to go through all the details of the tribulation. And of course, there are some that may not agree with the interpretation that perhaps uh, I'm very happy to accept simply because I read Scripture at face value here. And I would suggest that this was the same for our Lord speaking to his disciples. Jesus did not want his disciples to get so involved in prophecy that they would neglect the responsibilities of the present that they're in. And some people will spend all their time trying to work out the date that the Lord Jesus will be returning, and if not the exact date, a close understanding. But you know what? That's not what our responsibility is. Our responsibility is, as we said this morning, to be evangelists, to go into the world, to proclaim the gospel, to explain to people what it means to trust in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. And I'm sure that it is this, for this reason that Jesus gave these two parables at the end of the chapter. And the first one involves a fig tree. Now, I'm guessing fig trees don't grow particularly well in Ontario. I, I, I've never really contemplated that fact but I suspect has anyone got a fig tree in their garden okay in England they will grow because we don't have hard winters that we have here and so in the garden in England that I grew up in there was a fig tree it didn't have loads of figs on it but there was enough and if you left them long enough they would mature and they were tasty so the first one is the fig tree, verses 28 to 31. And this emphasizes knowing that the return or the coming again of the Lord Jesus is near. And the second parable emphasizes not knowing the time of his return. Friends, if you're a believer, then the words of our Lord Jesus here in verses 32 to 37 are paramount and vital to you. I say believers, 
If you're not a believer, then these verses combined with the verses before should frighten you senseless. Because it could be that you're heading for the tribulation on a scale you cannot understand and even begin to comprehend. Now as believers, we are not looking for signs. But many people spend all their time looking for signs. As believers, we are to look for Jesus. <clears throat> now in these verses that, are, that we see before us, the two parables, I'm going to suggest to you that the first parable, the parable of the fig tree, is actually addressed by our Lord to those who will go through the tribulation period, the believers that there are at that time. I believe that that's the statement that is being made here, <clears throat> which if not understood, it refers to the limited seven-year period of the tribulation. And of course, it can be confusing if we don't understand that because Mark 13 verse 30 says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until these things take place. Well, if you were to suggest that the things that are being spoken of here would all happen within the generation that Jesus had been speaking to, then of course we would struggle to understand how the scriptures are formulated and we would perhaps worry that what we were being told was not necessarily an accurate statement. But I have to say that when you read it in the context that we have before us, and the parable of the fig tree is talking about the fact that those who are going through the tribulation, the one generation in this seven-year period, they will be able to know that he is coming, that he is returning very, very soon. How will they know that? Because they look at the fig tree. I gather that most trees in, uh, in Israel are evergreen trees. And one of the few sort of broadleaf tree is the, um, is the fig tree. And as you get close to it and you see the different sprouts and the different leaves beginning to come out on it, you know it's telling you summer's coming. Now, we as kids in England used to look out for the, cap, uh, the, uh, the lamb's tails or the catkins that we found on the silver birch trees. And when you saw them, we would come running in to mum and say, Mum, winter's nearly over because it meant the spring was coming and we would look forward to that. And that was the same with the fig tree. So our Lord says in verse 29, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near. And of course, this is another evidence that our Lord was not talking to that generation in Judea at the time because they had not seen all these things actually take place. But the second parable is the one which is really important for us today. And in the second parable, which is 32 to 37, it was given to all generations, we're told. It was given to the disciples, and then as they sat with our Lord on the Mount of Olives, overlooking the temple and this parable, it should change our outlook and our state of readiness. Are we ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? The parable of the householder warns us 
warns us all today very clearly to be alert because we do not know when the master of the house will return. That's the message that Jesus is explaining so very clearly here. And we turn in the scriptures to 1 Corinthians and 15 verses 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Now, like the householder in the parable in verse 34, our Lord gave each one his work to do. And friends, we have work to do. We should be working for our Savior. But at the same time, we should be watching. We work with the work that is given to us to do, which is the proclamation of the gospel. We care for each other. We love each other. We encourage each other. We look out for each other. We proclaim the gospel. We share the gospel with those who need to hear it. I was looking at a young lady down here. I was picked on her this morning, but she had... Uh, uh, shown me a little tract that she's done for an art project. Now, isn't that wonderful to get the gospel to people? And she's worked hard on it, and it's lovely. And maybe we'll have to reproduce it and print it for us to be able to use in our fellowship. But the point being is that the work of the gospel is imperative. It's not an optional extra to go into the world and to proclaim the good news. It's a commandment that's given to us. And also, as we share the word of God, it never comes back empty. It always achieves something. Yes, it might achieve the fact that someone has rejected it, but it has demonstrated what that person has responded. And so we discover that we are here to do a task. We are here to work. Our task as believers is to be faithful to him and to be busy for him. Sometimes you see that silly car bumper sticker or whatever it is, Quick, look busy, Jesus is coming. Well, you know, I understand the sentiment that we have there, but the reality is simply this. We have a task to perform, a work to do, and we need to be doing it. Not to spend our time speculating or even debating about the hidden details of the prophecies in Scripture. Because if we spent all our time doing that, we wouldn't be out sharing the gospel. We wouldn't be out explaining to people what it is to come and to know the Savior. And people would think, wow, what a strange bunch. But it is indeed to proclaim the gospel. Watchfulness has nothing to do with going to heaven. It is purely a matter of pleasing Jesus. Hearing his loving commandments and receiving his reward. We go to heaven because of his grace, not because of our faithfulness or our good works. So the warning that our Lord Jesus gives us here in Mark 13 is, take heed that you are not deceived. Take heed that you do not become discouraged and quit. Because there are some people over the centuries who have said, well, he hasn't come for the last 2,000 years. Take heed, watch, and pray. And finally, I say unto you all, watch. 
Are you watching for his return? Have you come to the Savior and repented of your sin? Have you turned to him? Do you know that you belong to Jesus? Have you understood that he came and he died for you because he loves you? And because as his blood was shed, our sins are washed away. And of course, that isn't what just makes us a believer, as we saw this morning. He then places his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. And that means we belong to him. Have you experienced the Holy Spirit living within you? One of the ways that we can tell this is because we're watching for his return. We look forward to seeing him return or to being in heaven with him. Have you come to the Savior and repented of your sin? And if not, I urge you to call out to him now, this evening, and then follow his instruction to watch. Amen.